0: Good morning, Team Kulak community. And on behalf of the Kulak Center and Rekord University and Marikor University Foundation, we're happy to be back with you for after a few weeks for another episode of our special series focused on the war going on in Ukraine down the rabbit hole on the Russia-Ukraine war. As always, we have our Russia subject matter expert here, our distinguished fellow, Dr. Yuval Weber, to bring us up to date on, uh, on sort of major themes and developments over the last few weeks, and then now that we're all kind of back here and gearing up for the academic year, you can expect that we're going to we're going to kind of try and resume our more regular tempo of doing this, so we can continue to present information about the war in close to real time, and so uh, so folks can chew on chew on it, have a drive discussions in classrooms or elsewhere, um, and just otherwise try and help make sense of what we're seeing on the battlefield because we you know we continue to to get tons of information raw information thrown in front of us. We need someone to help us make sense of all of it so that's why we have you all here all right um you've all great to see you again and so we'll just kind of get right into it as we um talked about a few different themes to sort of get up to speed here and uh, the first one you mentioned was sort of that we're over the last few weeks we've now seen a entering into a third phase of the war we've it's we've sort of talked about different phases previously um but as you mentioned we seem to be shifting into Phase three, so if you sort of tell us what, what that is and what we've seen so far and what we might expect here in the coming weeks.
1: Great. Thank you, Major Brown and uh, Ian. <laughs> it's been so long. I forgot we were onto a first name basis. Um, That's right? No. So it's great to see you again. Um, right. So, in terms of where the fighting is right now, as you mentioned, it's, it's in effect, the third phase of the conflict. So the 1st phase of the conflict was, uh, you know, just to re- you know, refresh everyone's memory. This was the attempted shock and awe of Ukraine, um, by bombing basically the entire country, uh, simultaneously on the 1st day of the war and trying to capture the capital, you know, with special forces with, uh, airborne troops within, you know, the 1st hours of the conflict. With the idea being that if, uh, Russia can capture Kiev. In a couple of days, you know, overcoming token resistance, they would spend the next couple of weeks, uh, collecting surrenders from across the country. That would have been the idea that some version of regime change, some territorial concessions, perhaps even partition, that Ukraine itself would have ceased to exist in a meaningful manner, in a manner that, according to Putin, would be threatening. Obviously, that did not work because uh, Ukrainians, one, had been preparing for this war for eight years, but two, they're also ready for the conflict, given that the troop buildup had started in April of the previous year. And we're now in month 6 of this. So, just to give a sense of time. This war in essence, or let's say, like. This, you know, in 1 sense, started 2014, but the troop buildup up uh, started in April 2021. That's what led to the meeting between President Biden, President Putin in June of 21 in Switzerland. So, there was a long run up to this conflict and so that's 1 of the many, many reasons that Russia's. Um, Russia's conflict did not work out as planned. So the first one did not work. Uh, they didn't, were not able to compel uh, Ukraine to accept some sort of humiliating peace, Minsk 3, etc. cetera. So the second phase has, was Russia's attempt to retake uh, the Donbas sort of inch by inch. That's been relatively more successful, but far slower and at far greater human cost uh, than the first phase. There's been a lot of discussion as to how many Russian soldiers have been killed and wounded, um, there's a huge range, Um, but let's say the high end of that has been in terms of killed and wounded, let's say in terms of killed, um, I've seen over the past couple of weeks something like relatively reasonable or let's say relatively mainstream um, sources such as U.S. Department of Defense, U.K. Ministry of Defense, um, saying something to the effect of 20 to 30,000. 15, 20, 30,000 have been killed, And therefore, how many injured to killed? You have a lot of sort of estimates there. The highest that I've seen is 75,000 killed and injured uh, over the course of this war in more or less the first five and a half months of fighting. So as Russia has basically very slowly taken, you know, settlement by settlement, kilometer by kilometer, um, once again, that phase has come to an end because we are now going to the third phase of Ukraine's counteroffensive in the south. So what was the thing, you know, getting us back? The thing that got, in essence, the first phase, and the second phase that comes to an end, leading us to the third phase, is what a dear friend of the Krulak Center, uh, Australian Major General, uh, retired, uh, McRyan, has called a strategy of corrosion. The Russians have more of basically everything. So the Ukrainians have done well Not by fighting the Russians directly, because they lose those engagements, but they've gone after supply chains. They've gone over logistical centers. They've gone after, um, the command and control, which is really important in a highly centralized military, such as Russia's. So, by corroding Russia's ability to fight. The Ukrainians have been able to slow Russian advances. And by slowing Russian advances have 1 weakened morale. They've obviously, like, degraded the capabilities of the Russian fighting forces and have been able to create this, um, basically, this momentum where they're going to be able to retake the areas previously conquered by Russia, which Russia is not able to resupply very easily. And so when we now think about what is the context of the third phase of fighting, Ukraine has concentrated on basically cutting off the supply uh, lanes of communication um, for from Russia into Donbas and into Kherson, which is the south. And Kherson is the only major city of Ukraine, which is to the west of the Dnieper River. So the Ukrainians have focused on basically taking out all the bridges that supply Kherson. Now, when we then think about what is the real value, strategically and then symbolically of Kherson, For both sides, this is really, really important. If Ukraine can, obviously, like, what do they want to do out of this? They want to liberate their territories from Russia to save their people, save their cities. Ukrainian uh, foreign minister, uh, Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov, previous Russian President Dmitry Medvedev have made very threatening and very direct threats to Ukraine's sovereignty in reference to Kherson, Neighboring region, a neighboring region, as well as the rest of Donetsk and Lugansk, saying that they are going to organize a referenda in order to, um, you know, speak to the the mass desire of these regions to uh, secede from Ukraine, and as they secede from Ukraine, to then be able to apply for uh, accession to Russia. This is what Russia did with Crimea, and they have clearly said that this is going to happen um soon ukrainian territory is uh you know redesigned um ukrainian sovereignty is limited and um russian regional elections are september 11th of this year so if it's going to happen obviously the the official, russian officials lavrov medvedev and many other um parliamentary officials has said this is going to happen september 11th is a great day because it then signals that kherson Zaporozhye, etc are the same as Russian regions, which are having their elections the same day in Russia. So obviously, Ukraine wants to prevent that. Who controls Kherson uh, has basically more access to the mouth of the Dnieper River. If Ukraine is able to retake that area, um, they will be better able to protect Odessa and the country's Black Sea access. And obviously, that's crucial for its long term viability as a country. And that's what Russia wants to limit. Um, if they are successful, and if the, the West continues to provide long range rocketry, and there has been discussion in recent weeks, um. Alyssa Slotkin, Adam Kinzinger, who are Democratic and Republican representatives have both said that there is bipartisan support for sending, um. New, uh, the army tactical missile system, the, Atikins, uh, to Ukraine and the difference between that and the HIMARS. Mars. Uh, which has been used to devastating effect. High has a range of 70 kilometers. Um, this new missile system, this missile system um, has a range of 300 kilometers. So if Ukraine is able to take its territory and is able to get um, new longer range uh, missiles, then it would be in a position to threaten Russian forces elsewhere in Crimea or elsewhere in Ukraine, as well as Crimea. So as Russia is now sending its troops from the east to the south, in order to prevent Ukraine's counteroffensive, they are thinning their own lines. And that is in essence where the Ukrainians are forcing these difficult choices on them. Where to supply, how much to supply, and therefore to identify for the Ukrainians and the rest of the world, what Russia actually cares about. But symbolically, the battle for Kherson and the surrounding region is also a fundamentally political issue. If Ukraine wins, like basically this thing, what they will be able to then articulate to a worldwide audience is that all the financial and military support that has come has worked they are able to turn back the russians on the battlefield and so therefore when you know european voices which are opposed to ukraine which are pro russia their ability to say you know the costs are enough we've done enough there's no need to do anything further because ukraine is clearly going to lose we're only basically delaying the inevitable, those voices are silenced. And obviously for the Russians, they wanna say, you know, they wanna win so that they can say, this is happening and it's happened, both to outside voices as well as to um, their own population to say, look, for all this sacrifice, we actually got something really important. The longer term issue is, you know, the, and this is something that you know we can discuss now or later, is thinking about the norm of territorial revision. The key U.S. interest in this is not Ukrainian victory or Russian defeat, but if countries around the world, look at Russia changing by force, Ukraine's borders, there are many countries in this world, which would say, hey, if Russia had a historical claim and they were able to do this, and with all the US support in the world, Ukraine wasn't able to win. Well, we have borders that we don't like. Why shouldn't we go there? And what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is Azerbaijan taking this opportunity to engage in mobilization to retake the rest of Nagorno-Karabakh um, that they didn't win in the last time uh, that they fought against Armenia um, during the last presidential uh, election. So we can see that you know, that's the larger issue of what we're talking about here and. You know, we have a lot of other things to to discuss, but I think that's a good place to um maybe pause on the counteroffensive.
0: offensive. Yeah, no, I, I agree and the uh, that. Something that uh, to our listeners. I'll go back and touch on here is you've all you mentioned more than once how. This war has moved us into, I think, like the the post post cold war world, I think is i forget how you characterized it but you know whatever the post cold war world was we are now in a in a in a new one and uh that notion that you can start to settle you know it's okay now to to go settle your territorial disputes by force whereas uh you know the norm has sort of been to work through some sort of you know arbitration discussion process that has the potential to make that post post cold war world an even messier and more dangerous place for everybody, and I, I don't want to get too far off on on a tangent here, you know. But as we're looking at um, recent visit by the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, going through Taiwan and the, for lack of a better term, the poop storm that has sort of um, opened up on the Chinese side from that, it's, it's sort of once I once you s- countries decide they want to start rolling the iron dice and going after stuff by force rather than by, by mediation or some other process. The uh, the really scary thing is not, I mean, the, the, the violence that comes out of that is potentially scary, but so is also the unpredictable effects of that. Because once yes. you start that, you can't predict where it's gonna go. And I, I, I right before we started talking, I saw that, um, China had launched a bunch of uh, DF-11 ballistic missiles into their different sort of exercise boxes that they placed all around Taiwan. And several of those fell not into, well, several fell into Taiwan claimed waters, but a bunch also fell into Japanese economic exclusion zone claim waters. And, you know, th- this is that unpredictability, I think, where countries decide they can start going after stuff. Um, they can't, you can't keep that in a box or in a bottle or whatever right. you want to call it once you go down that route. Um, so it's kind of, that's, that's scary, dangerous stuff here. It, it, you know, to the point if Ukraine is not able to get its territory back and it seems like, you know, Russia got what it wanted by force of arms that opens it up to lots of other people to Hey, let's go ahead and try too. because as you said, if they couldn't stop it with everything in the U S was supplying, you know, the U S isn't going to go and provide that level of support. to you know, little, every single little border dispute around the world. So let's go get what the getting's good. Um, I, and I do want to go back one thing and then we can go to the next thing is that I, the missiles you mentioned as well, um, something else I was seeing on, uh, on discussion boards was, that the, uh, the attacking missiles you mentioned, much longer range than the, the standard HIMARS thing. And some people had noted that part of that range basically threatens Russia, what range of Russia's Black Sea fleet presence in Crimea. It makes all of that a, uh, a target. And if Russia can't maintain Black Sea naval presence, um, that would really, one, that would really change um, Ukraine's ability to, to get its grain out and keep its economy going um which would be huge um something else with those weapons and we i saw some of this in the many videos of depots blowing up there have been a couple of strikes now against uh what i was reading a a crimean sort of rail stop and this i'm maybe you can you can handle this a little bit before we move on but if if ukraine is able to continually affect the crimean area um does that turn into like a millstone potentially around russia's neck because the the strikes that they were doing recently um i guess there's like one rail line like a single track rail line going through crimea and there's one place where there are these like kind of breakout in the parallel lines where like if you want to shun trains around to make room for others you can do that but there's only one of those and ukraine knows exactly where that is and knowing that russia's got to move large trains of reinforcements and supplies and people all they got to do is is you know maybe get some uh some open source Intel, um, updates and just throw rockets at that place. Cause there's only one. Um, and I, I, one of the more recent strikes, um, down there said it was a, an unusually high casualty count because all those trains, all that stuff is so densely together because there's only so many tracks you can put it on. So if say Ukraine gets the longer range missiles as well, um, does Crimea start to become a, a poison pill in, in Russia's overall plan?
1: So, there's 2 things to to consider here 1 is. Crimea is a lasting. Is the the thing so. When we think about, like, for Putin, what are his successes over the course of his political career? Um, he was able, in, in a certain sense to defeat all the boogeymen of the 1990s, the chechens oligarchs, um, you know, liberals. <laughs> uh. To create basically a. What is called, you know a vertical of power in sort of like Russian studies, but to create a political system that is very centralized, very elitist, and something that would have been fundamentally very familiar to um like Peter the Great, like a, a traditional Russian practice of power. And then thinking, what are the external issues that have made Putin what he is today, the person who can change basically the Constitution at will to rule indefinitely? Was able to and obviously solve Chechnya as a territorial issue by basically creating a fiefdom for somebody else, but really the intervention into Georgia to create uh, additional frozen uh, disputes and you know these like sort of statelets like Abkhazia, South Ossetia, but to basically keep Georgia from NATO, to um, intervene into Syria into a region that's not Russia's own, but really when it comes to Ukraine, Crimea is more than all of those combined because that is land that went from one country to Russia. If Crimea is threatened, and like the symbol of Crimea now is the giant bridge that the Russians were able to b- build from their own territory to basically the peninsula of Crimea. Because Crimea, is famously, uh, it is not connected to Russia, but requires a land bridge across Ukraine. This is what the fight over Melitopol and Mariupol were about, we're protecting, you know, to extent or creating this land bridge from Russia to Crimea. If Ukraine is able to put weaponry that can threaten all of Crimea, at one point or another, they will go after the Black Sea Fleet, which creates, which limits, therefore, Russia's ability to supply the to basically project power into the Eastern Mediterranean and to supply by sea uh, its Syrian conflict. It also changed just the ability to, like, threaten Ukraine and, like, for Ukraine to, like, get its grain out. But also for the rest of the countries in the region, if there is less of a Black Sea fleet and Turkey is not allowing other Russian warships to go into the Mediterranean, then Russia's ability to be a southern power, which is something that Russian Tsars have thought about for hundreds of years, would be extremely limited. So, again, Crimea is important because of everything that it allows Russia to do. If the ukrainians go after the black sea fleet and they go after the bridge that connects russia to crimea then that is a level 10 defcon 1 million disaster or i guess defcon like goes down like when it gets more serious
0: yeah i i, I should probably know this but i'm i'll, I'll call it threat level midnight because i'm currently re-watching the office and that's my context yeah. for the worst possible thing that can happen
1: we are a threat. if they lose that we're at threat level midnight We're at threat level. We have lost our scale because it then suggests that everything that Russia and Putin have done. Over the past 8 plus years and counting and really Putin's entire tenure. Is now directly under threat and the direction is only going 1 way. The other issue, which you raised about trains is. You know, I, I think it's maybe Lawrence Friedman scholar from King's college London, who said the longer this war goes on. Ukraine is turning into is evolving into 21st century fighting force in terms of updating its, you know, tactics, its um, techniques, its capabilities. And Russia is um, evolving into 20th century fighting force, because it's not replacing the stuff that gets destroyed with contemporary things. So they have to go to older and older. um, uh, Just items as well as just tactics and techniques. And part of that is we see the Russians are still relying to a very great extent on on I mean, basically 19th and early 20th century technology to get all of their items to the front and to really sort of resupply the troops at the front. And again, this is like another tangent, but why does the United States, why does NATO writ large, why do NATO allies spend so much money on being able to have lift capabilities? And to be able to supply basically war zones or whatever else by air it's so that you don't have fixed assets, which are extremely well known to the adversary uh, at all times. So that anytime you use literally your single rail line. Your enemy doesn't know within the next couple of minutes and then basically uh, points the missiles towards that. And this is, in fact, like what we can think about. Russian resilience versus basically. Let's say Western resilience and so forth. Resilience is basically what do you have at the moment the crisis begins? And what the Russians didn't have is the ability to resupply troops to the front. By air, by different mechanisms, except by something that has been in place since World War II, And before World War II, I should say, because those those rail lines that we're talking about, they started to be built in the 19th century. And that is a key issue of which Russia's ability to fight as a modern force, one, could have been called into question from the get-go, but two, the longer this war goes on, the more there are going to be some combination of 19th century uh, logistical capabilities, 20th century weapons, but 21st century grievances. And that is going to lead to the reduction of morale across the fighting forces.
0: Yeah, as you were saying that, it sort of flew into my head, 19th, 20th century technology and 21st century grievances could be a great paper topic for any student out there who's listening, um, as, as well, potentially a a uh, comparative between like U.S. and NATO strategic airlift and Russian strategic airlift, um, because, I mean, it's not like the Russians don't have large aircraft, but um, they're, as you said, their default is going to 19th, 20th century modes of transportation. Whereas our default is like, I'm just gonna, you know, as we sort of saw in Afghanistan, I'm just gonna throw as much stuff in planes as I can, and we're gonna move it out. Um, and guess what, we can we can do that very, very well. So uh, I, I, maybe another paper topic out there for students comparative um, strategic lift for the for our, those two sides. Um, but yeah, so uh, to, to make sure we're sort of trucking on, um, I think we'll uh, we can shift to the next thing maybe. And so we were since we're on the topic, of the black sea anyway, um, the 2nd theme you mentioned was. Uh, grain and gas issues, so some of these economic. Um, concerns sure. as well, um, right. so yeah, so go ahead. Let's, uh, where, where do we stand on those?
1: So, something that we've been tracking with also dear friend of the Krulak center, uh, Dr. Zelensky, um. He with the issue of grain and the issue of grain to remind listeners or viewers is. Russia and. Obviously, Ukraine are agricultural powerhouses of the world uh, here. Let's say in the United States for, I assume, mostly American audience here. When we think of grain, we think of the Midwest. We maybe some stuff comes from Brazil, etc. cetera. We don't think about, like, Ukraine and Russia uh, as basically grain suppliers, but they basically provide most of the grain for North Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, um, Middle East, Central Asia. So when the war began, obviously Ukraine mined its uh its ports because the Russians directly threatened amphibious assault on Odessa. And an amphibious assault on Odessa and the Black Sea, which is the main Black Sea port, um Mariupol is another black is a Sea of Azov port. But if Odessa fell, Ukraine would become a landlocked country. That would also allow Russians to probably like send their troops on their way to Transnistria and Moldova and really a very different map. So the Ukrainians uh, mined their ports, uh, which obviously then prevented the Russians from attacking, but also the Russians then arrayed their ships around the uh, the mined areas, creating a blockade of Ukraine and its Black Sea ports. That meant that the grain that would ordinarily go across the rest of the world did not. This created acute food crises, in many of the in the areas that i just described because suddenly a lot of sunflower oil is not ha- is not being exported a lot of grain is not being exported a lot of corn is not being exported and so the prices go up and russia's strategy in all this was in effect to recreate what they did in uh, syria when they started the intervention in 2015 by blocking the export of uh by blocking basically the import of grain into Syria, to the areas un, that were not under Syrian government control, they created food crises. The Russians also started to bomb uh, hospitals, residential areas, um, and other points of no military value, but tremendous psychological um, pressure on civilian populations. Obviously, stuff that they are doing in Ukraine right now. So, the idea, in t- the result in 2015 is that this created, by having food insecurity, you had civil insecurity. Civil insecurity obviously created uh, instability amongst the the governing bodies in Syria, which created a migration flow from Syria into Europe. That helped the AFD, the German far right, get into government. It certainly helped Brexit get over the line. So Russia's strategy in a grain blockade on Ukraine was something similar. If we, the Russians, can create a food crises across all these areas of the global south, civil insecurity, governmental instability, migration flows to Europe. That would create political problems for the European Union writ large, as well as specific countries uh, that would be the recipients, and that would create, again, the political momentum within Europe to have these far-right pro-Russian voices say, we've done enough for Ukraine, Look at all the problems that it's causing, and we'll talk about gas in a 2nd. So why don't we just stop supporting Ukraine so that we can bring all this nonsense to an end. And bring it to an end quickly, because it's only going in 1 way in any case that was that was as clear as can be. And in response to that Turkey, the United Nations, as well as the United States through fairly aggressive declassification of intelligence showed that 1. The Russians were stealing Ukrainian grain to putting pressure on Russia through uh, basically their own devices, as well as creating a diplomatic coalition from the West and African countries to put Russia under pressure to come to the negotiating table, not on the conflict itself, but on this grain issue. So, after weeks of intense negotiations, Ukraine and Turkey came to an agreement that Ukraine would export would escort and export through these mined waters ships carrying grain only to Turkey. Turkey would inspect it, and from there on, it would allow it to go to you know wherever it's going to go. For its part, because Ukraine and Russia don't do any uh, direct negotiations together, Russia agreed with Turkey that it would not attack any ship carrying grain. So two bilateral deals, Ukraine, Turkey, Russia, Turkey, overseen by the United Nations. They come to this deal, which, in effect, break the Russian blockade. Ukraine would also, for its part, effectively reveal where these mines are. They come to an agreement on a Friday. Russia bombs Odessa's port on Saturday, which was perhaps one of the more petulant things that Putin could do, because what it said was, I'm the person who made this agreement, but don't forget, I'm also the person that can undo this at any point. So. With uh, with that temper tantrum aside, as of this week, the 1st, uh, ship carrying Ukrainian um, exports, uh, grain exports 26,000 tons of corn has left. Odessa Ukrainian officials have said they have the ships and the grain for immediately 16 more uh, of that sort of capacity to leave Ukraine. This should alleviate food crises in the poorest parts of the world. So that's the grain issue. The big takeaway here is that political pressure on Russia did work. It worked not because it was coming from the United States alone or from Europe alone, but the countries that ostensibly would be, are the ones that are more open to Russian assistance, directly beseeched Russia um, to uh, stop the blockades so that the current governments could stay in place. Pressure does work. Putin is not some person who cannot sort of understand, like up and down, left and right, when there is concerted pressure on him. So, from that, we should then turn to, you know, if we're thinking about the global south, the global north, the issue here is now of uh, natural gas. The reason that we are hearing about gas in the middle of uh, summer is that what the Europeans wanted to do was to fill up every available stockpile, uh, every available gas storage facility, so that when russia finally cut off or europe finally got off uh russian natural gas exports there would be enough to overcome that uh that supply shock whether it be this winter next winter at some point obviously the russian gas the russian natural gas oil weapon leverage is right now for that exact reason and so what the russians did is first of all you know Nord stream 2 Is obviously has not gone into operation Nord Stream 1, the Russians have taken their. They took it offline, then brought the capacity, the throughput capacity back to 40% and have dropped it back down to 20%. And so the, the reason that they keep Nord stream 1 going is that they can say, well. We are doing as much as we can, but because of. All the conditions imposed on us, we are unable to fulfill all of our contracts. So they are claiming force majeure because of the sanctions regime. Force majeure is, you know, the legal sort of like economic term when something is outside of your control. Anyone who's bought a house notices at some point the insurance company is on the hook unless there's an act of God. Apparently, we are more religious than, you know, French uh, enthusiastic. So we say act of God instead of force majeure. Um, And so what Russia is claiming is that sanctions regime is not as the result of their own actions, but basically this this act of God. There was a larger sort of subplot here of a uh, Gazprom large turbine that had been under repair in Canada and whether Canada was going to give it back to Germany so that Germany could basically give it back to Gazprom to reinstall. Gazprom claimed that it couldn't increase the capacity unless it got this turbine back, so therefore they got the turbine back. And now they said, um, we don't know whether we can install it because we don't know if the repairs were done correctly. If the repairs were done correctly. Therefore, we're going to keep the throughput at 20%. Now, what is the Russia's play in all this? The reason I mentioned Nord Stream 1 versus 2, Nord Stream 2 has never gone online, even though it's mostly complete because of basically this conflict. The Russians have offered to increase the throughput capacity. Of hundred percent of what Nord Stream Two can do, so if Nord Stream Two goes online, Europe can get all the gas uh, that is able to um, be exported. So that's Russia's play in all this: It's to break the uh, the prohibition, the taboo on Nord Stream Two, if possible, and if not, to create gas crises in uh, Europe. And the gas crises, you know, from let's say Germany's official data. Um, the Germans have spent, you know, in the 1st, 5 months of the conflict, and obviously, like. They're now building liquefied natural gas LNG facilities. They are getting different sources of supply, but they spent 160% more in the 1st, 5 months of this conflict on natural gas i.e., in 2022 compared to 2021. So, that those are the sort of, you know, supply shock that Russia would like to carry on for the rest of the year. For its part, Europe has started to engage in 15% reduction of uh, just demand, you know, you know, find the ways to conserve because the ultimate European Union play in all this is that. In effect, they're securitizing their climate change uh, goals. Cheap Russian gas has been basically the bane. Of Europe's climate agenda for years, if not decades. At the time when gas is really expensive and the the country supplying it is like really cruel and evil, this is the mechanism by which reduction of demand, changing different uh, sources of supply, changing different types of energy that are used in the energy mix of Europe, all those things that the EU has wanted to do for years and decades, it's actually happening right now. So instead of basically eating dirt for many years and not getting towards the climate goals, the clim- basically, you know, reduction of fossil fuel consumption in order to meet basically lowered emission standards. They're meeting it very quickly, focusing all the pain, the economic and social dislocation now and blaming it all on Russia. So in that regard, we can see even though the Europeans are complaining, um, you know, because it's higher cost for industry, it's going to be higher cost for uh, consumers, it actually achieves a much bigger goal in in the long run. So in that regard, Europe is actually fairly committed to basically focusing all the pain of getting off Russian gas as quickly as possible because of this ulterior motive. So we'll see over the course of the next year, more production from the U.S., you know, the EU commission chief, Ursula von der Leyen, went to Azerbaijan, you know, the place that is, Trying to, like, you know, uh, change its territory, territorial borders in order to get its gas. We see that Europe has gone to uh, Israel and Egypt in order to force um, agreement on the gas field that is shared between those two countries in order to get production moving as quickly as possible. Algeria, basically, these are the days of, uh, you know, wine and roses, because they can produce a lot. So we see in different sorts of ways, Europe taking this crisis. As anti-Russia mechanism or cover for its climate goals, and so that, in a way, is sort of what we can see. The grain is starting to move out. Europe is taking advantage of the crisis as two of the bigger structural issues. What we see in um, basically European uh, international economic policy.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's great, and that's really interesting. And another two thoughts jumped in my head. I'm I'm gonna partly use our talk here to foot stomp things that we're going to be doing in the next academic year. So, um, you know, for, forgive my tangents, but one, maybe think we maybe we need to get Dr. Tarzi back on here um, to because looking at those energy considerations in the Mediterranean um, was something that was a focus area. I mean, one of our you know scholars program last year, but also, you know, it's that's his piece of the world um, that he, uh, you know, he has a lot of really deep knowledge of. So we may have to get them back on, you know, talking about, you know, Israel and Egypt, force, you know, forcing them closer together to to resolve these things, um, and uh, and you know, I, I certainly never thought of Algeria as you know like a, a, a gas powerhouse, but this again, post post Cold War world, we're seeing shifts that we may not have shifted or see or expected to see um, until some forcing function came along, and uh, my my second stomp is that. As it happens for the lack Scholars Program this year for ay twenty three, which Dr. Tarzi and Dr. Anzalone, in Middle East Studies, are going to be backstopping, um, global energy change and security implications is the focus of that program. So, um, uh, for those students who are interested, that's going to be the topic, and maybe we can get yourself on Yuval as a as a guest speaker in that series as uh, as well as we we develop that out. Um, Okay, great. So, um, I think we have one more thing we wanted to, to hit here, right?
1: Um, in, our, in our time? Yes. So, um, also, uh, so because this is a conflict um, and Russians have committed war crimes basically from start to finish, uh, there has been two, two things that have uh, really sort of resonated um, with international observers over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, the 1st 1 is, uh, increasing evidence that Russia likely executed 53, um. POWs. Um, so. In the Olenivka, uh, prison, which is actually close to the front line, so another violation of Geneva Conventions. Um, Russia claimed that 1 of Ukraine's high Mars rockets, you know, Western supplied rockets, um, hit a building that happened to contain 53, um, Ukrainian. POWs. And these are the POWs who were um, uh, the ones defending Mariupol, these Azov uh, battalion uh, fighters. So that was Russia's claim. POWs were uh, attacked by their own side using the weapons supplied to them by the West. The Ukrainians have claimed that this is not true for several reasons. And one, they have called for the International Committee of the Red Cross to investigate. Um, Russia still says yes but they haven't actually permitted them to come in. Because what the Russians did do is they provided um, video coverage of this because they put on the news, here's what those awful Ukrainians did. And they showed, you know, like, here's the bombed out building, here's basically like where the prisoners were, they removed the corpses at that time. The Ukrainians, as well as, you know, people who were looking more carefully said, this doesn't hold up for several reasons. One, we never attacked this building. Okay, you can say, well, if you did, you didn't, that's both sides would obviously have that claim. But the thing that is more in essence damning to the Russian interpretation or basically their narrative is that this Mars rocket is very powerful and it blows up stuff. And one of the things that I think I learned many years ago, like that just like blew my mind is like, how do bombs work? I remember like for those, uh, Senior citizens, as well as myself, uh, who remember the Oklahoma City bombing. This is where I learned it when I think I was in middle school. Is that what bombs do? Is they don't like melt things or vaporize things, but they just take a, they just take that object and they throw it in many different directions very quickly. That's what explosions do. So when the Russians filmed their own the building where these uh, fifty three had died, the roof was mostly intact the beds were still in a row. The walls were still standing. So if Ukraine was uh, throwing a rocket onto this building, you would expect everything to have gone in a million different directions in a million different pieces. What the Russians actually showed is that there was one hole in the roof. Everything was more or less in place except like burned and that from the windows, the burn patterns to the outside was just from the window itself, indicating that what is more likely is that the Russians use some sort of vacuum or incendiary bomb, either to kill these people directly or to cover up the the likelihood that they executed them beforehand and wanted to cover it up by claiming that it was a bomb. So they bombed a building that already had corpses inside of it. The other thing that is very interesting about this is that the Russians showed that they had all these uh, fragments of the the actual, like the actual missile. It doesn't have any of the um, uh, serial numbers, barcodes, or logo of the manufacturer on them. So if they were coming from Lockheed Martin, there would be You would know. You what? would know because that stuff is tracked very closely uh, just to know exactly where it's coming from and what it had been used for. That's part of how the United States tracks its weapons used in war. So between the building not being destroyed, suspicious burn patterns, and inconclusive at best shelf fragments, it's likely that Russia is executing en masse Ukrainian POWs. That is something that we will monitor over the course of the next couple episodes to see what happens with that. The other issue we've started to see is that, um, Russian soldiers are filming themselves mutilating uh, the body parts of living uh, Ukrainian POWs in truly horrific ways, um, and then executing people uh, on the spot. This, in addition to um, you know executing people uh, who have their hands tied behind their backs, mass rape as a weapon of terror and war has led several voices, including the US ambassador to Ukraine several people within the US Congress and obviously like lots of people inside uh, Europe itself to have the United States declare or to you know to investigate and then to like move towards a finding that Russia is a state sponsor of terrorism and that's not just for what Russia is doing in the war in uh Ukraine but in addition to all of its poisonings abroad um assassinating people abroad uh all the various things that Russia does to basically make it a state sponsor of terrorism. Who are the others, just to give us the sense? This is Cuba, Syria, uh, North Korea, and Iran. So when, so to put Russia on that list, the effect of this would actually be pretty insane because all of those countries are relatively small economic states. There's not much that goes in and out. So, sanctions and and particularly sanctions waivers can be micro targeted at tourism for Cuba. Gas, when you know, like the nuclear weapons issues are going well, like those sanctions waivers can be put in. What designating Russia as a state sponsor of terror would do would oblige the United States to create a very big secondary sanctions um, enforcement regime to go after basically. Indian and Chinese purchases of Russian energy and other commodities in a more aggressive fashion uh, than what exists right now, because currently what the US has focused its energies on is not. And obviously there are exceptions for energy and for um, like foodstuffs uh, pharmaceuticals coming in, you know, life saving materials. The thing that the US really cares about and its allies really care about is, you know, the export of semiconductors, microchips, things of that nature into Russia and for its part, we'll see what, you know, uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit does. But for the most part, China and India have respected that sanction, Obviously, And one of the big things that uh, the Biden administration was able to do, unlike 2014, was get South Korea, Singapore and Taiwan to sign up to the sanctions regime. So one of the things of Russia's economy is that it's no longer advancing as a modern economy. It's just doing older things in, at greater greater tempo, greater extent. And so the earlier jibe about Russia evolving into 20, 20th century military, it's also evolving into a 20th century um, economy as well. This would force, so designating Russia as a state sponsor of terror would really call into question the US and allied capabilities of enforcing that over a uh much wider range of uh, economic interaction between Russia and the outside world so this would be a major major issue um in the international economy
0: yeah and I'm trying to I'm going through my mind trying to think of other people who like you know countries that used to be on the list but aren't anymore but this would be by far the most the, the largest most industrial capacity um you know largest largest economy that's been put on that list am I is that correct
1: yeah, because for all the economic might of Syria, Cuba, North Korea and Iran, I think all of them together, I, this is actually a good trivia question, are Moscow and St. Petersburg wealthier than those four countries? I would say yes. I, I don't know, but uh, certainly Russia is bigger than all of those countries combined in terms of its, um, in terms of its economy. Uh, and even to this point. International economic integration.
0: Yeah, well, it's that we'll put that on a list of things that we can explore and watch here in the coming weeks. Um, you know, and and especially some, you know, what additional evidence it might take to to drive people to cross that line or drive you know the U.S. or Western countries to cross that line because it, I, as as horrific as the execution of the prisoners and the mutilations are, like this is not the first thing that's been fairly well documented. You know. Um, this, this stuff has been coming up at least since the Russians were driven away from Buka and pretty much, you know, every day in some measure afterwards. Um, so I, I really wonder if, you know, if another POW execution would be the thing that finally does it, or if, if uh, Russia and its advocates are able to claim enough uncertainty that maybe that line is never, pro- I, I don't know. You know, I don't, I kind of don't want to find out, um, you know, but it what they're doing is not a surprise. It's just, Right. Um, you know, every, every new incident is just, it's reinforcing that this is how they operate. Um, so I wonder what it would take to finally drive, drive countries across that line to slap that label on them.
1: So it could be that, you know, again, once you start breaking these norms and, you know, thinking of a norm as like, what is the expectation of like appropriate or permissible behavior? When you start bringing this, like, who knows what our second and third order effects. It could be that, You know, these, this evidence, or these evidences, the the general evidence of war crimes in different domains, but all uh, having. The underlying lack of respect for human life. uh, If it's a Ukrainian, um, it could be that we won't see Russia being designated as a state sponsor of terror right now. But it may perhaps it makes the debate over those longer range missiles. The ones with 300 kilometer range. That might make that discussion, that conversation easier in order to say, well, what are our choices in terms of trying to stop human rights violations? Designate Russia the state sponsor of terror? 300 kilometer missiles. The 300 kilometer missiles, that's easier relative to state sponsor of terror. Yeah. Could it be that this is the thing that gets the United States to say the F 16? We're about to, you know, we're phasing these things out. Why don't we give those to either Ukraine directly or we'll give it to countries like Slovakia. So Slovakia can give its MiGs to um, Ukraine so that Ukraine has that many more um, uh, fighter jets that can be uh, put into the conflict right now.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question to look at, you know, whether there's the in terms of there there's a certain, you know, moral quality of the messaging of, of, of putting that label on Russia, uh, but it is harder. Whereas adding new things to the shopping list is is a lot easier, um, because you've you've already been handing over lots of stuff on the shopping list. One or two more bullet items—sorry, that was not a pun intentionally—but you know, one or two more bullet points on that list, uh, much easier sell um, since since the list and the shipping and all that stuff it's already on there. So, um, and and again, maybe another thing we explore in a breakout episode if if it starts looking like this comes to pass is what those knock-on effects are to some of those other larger countries, you know, but like for my person, me me personally, I could see China's already doing kind of a a cell phone in itself, a self-own, if not a cell phone, a self-own to make it harder to work with them and sort of um, drive people away because, um, you know, they're, they're, they're doing their own, their own aggression and their own expansionism stuff like that. And you're already starting to see, you know, some companies looking at trying to get out of that, before, uh, you know, before China becomes a partner that you simply can't work with, where, you know, you start throwing sanctions on them and they start losing business. But think like the real question mark is those other like other large economies like India, right? Like we, we want to be friendly with them. You know, world's most populous democracy. Um, well, but what do you do if you're asking them to to eat a lot of economic pain on these things? You know, does does that drive them away from where we want them to go? And And that's just one example. So. Um, yeah, another thing to watch here in, in the coming weeks. Um, so I know, uh, I'm sure not how much more time you have, and I know on the humanitarian list, other thing we're talking about was that is not, we don't have as much visibility into as you know, POW executions and mutilation is the, the forced movement of Ukrainians from Ukraine, occupied Ukraine into Russian territory. Um, and you, and you've described this, like this is in the millions now.
1: Yes, so Russia's own uh, state news agency um, trumpeted, I should say, like because the the article was very complimentary, that two point eight million Ukrainians have entered Russia since the beginning of the conflict, uh, and that includes five hundred thousand children. Ukraine obviously describes this as forced deportations, um, and people who have gone through it said that basically what the Russians do is they go to a village, they force everyone on the buses. They take them to what they call filtration camps, where they separate, and then in the filtration camp, um, you know, women and children, old people are moved along, and they get sent to like whatever area of uh, Russia is like experiencing labor shortage, because that, you know, this is not actually an aside. This is exactly it. Russia is a big place, as is very well known, um, and in lots of areas of the country there has always been a population and a labor shortage even though it's been very rich in commodities so the point of like the gulag system in the 1930s and into like the 1950s when russia was starting to really do industrialization is one arresting millions of people and sending them to these camps had the effect of breaking the target populations but two also providing low to zero cost labor to all these areas of russia That could otherwise not attract people to live there by market means by basically offering nice wages so what is russia doing with these millions of people taken from ukraine they're not sending them to like you know the nicest places of russia they're sending to the places in russia that otherwise don't have sufficient able-bodied people to keep local economies going so the and this is also to a large extent because russia's population is also Flatlining slash declining, the only way that Russia has been able to maintain population growth literally in the last decade or so is by uh, conquest, by annexation, by taking people from the neighbors. And so if we think about the uh, roughly 3 million people of like Crimea and like the rest of the regions, the Nesk Lugansk, plus an additional 2.8, without this, Russia would probably have some routine what? And as well as, like, the people who have left Russia because they just emigrate because of the war, which is now somewhere between 5 and 800,000. that when we think about this, Russia's population, instead of being roughly 145Million, would be under 140Million. And so what would that say about future force structure, etc.? So, in terms of the humanitarian issues here, Russia is taking Ukrainian citizens for its own needs. And so one of the reasons that Ukraine is fighting really hard to take back as much of its own territory is to put an end to this practice. And that's something that is going to be a generational issue as Ukraine, whenever this war does come to an end, will want its citizens back. And Russia might prevent, try to prevent these, these people from coming back into Russia, or coming back into Ukraine. So it's, it's going to be a complicated issue and one that we will return to like, over the next weeks and months.
0: Yeah, and uh, going back to the, you know, the 19th, 20th century framework, you know, we're talking about filtration camps and separating the old and the women and children and stuff and, and exporting them for forced labor. You know, it, it really feels like we're revisiting a, a, a different century in that, you know, because like we've we've seen obviously displaced populations from the war going on in Syria and the Middle East and, uh, you know, the rise and decline of ISIS, etc. Um, and I i don't want to improperly characterize but there you know this um what russia is doing is a much more deliberate strategy i th- I'm, i think that's probably fair to say as opposed to populations displaced in the course of uh um of warfare where where displacement is not necessarily the goal in this case displacement filtration sorting and exploitation is the goal very specifically
1: right. and so what do they do and so you know so the women, and children, the old people, you know, get sent to Russia. The men who are basically as part of these filtration camps, the Russians check them, because numerous witnesses have said the Russians check um, the, the men for any sort of like Ukrainian national symbols, like as tattoos. They check them for their ideological opinions, whether these people are pro-Ukraine. So those who are, those are the people who get arrested. The men who are unable to fight basically uh, go to Russia, the men who are able to fight. These are the ones who are being press ganged into um, the allied uh, militias, armies of Donetsk and Lugansk uh, people's republics. So people are arrested for their political beliefs, exploited for their economic value, or press ganged into military service.
0: Yeah, just like uh, certain certain groups of militaries and countries used to do back in the 20th century as part of their their own policy. Um yeah and I I you know to revisit this in the weeks and months um I I you know again frankly I when when and how this conflict comes to an end I I really struggle to see a way that you can you can track and get a lot of those people back because they're just gone. You know as you said Russia is a massive country. You know even if if Russia says it will how do you possibly enforce that? Like Who's gonna go in there and make them do it, right? If they really don't want to. Um, and that's a that's a that's kind of a heart wrenching question to think about.
1: Yeah. So right. I wanted to conclude on at least one, one note. So as you know, I've been writing these updates uh, daily in the first couple months of the war, a uh, little bit less frequently over the course of summer, but we'll get to at least weekly. Um, one thing that I've been tracking is, shortages in the Russian economy. French fries fonts uh in, in previous uh weeks. Uh I just want to note that in this week's uh update when I was looking for like just shortages when we just searching the Russian business news, um Botox is is no longer going to be available in Russia, at least the the official brand name version of it, uh, because the pharmaceutical manufacturer is called Avv, um and they they said you know consistent with uh, the sanctions uh, regime in place they're going to continue the export of uh life-saving medical uh pharmaceutical drugs etc um because you know people rely on their things to stay alive so like that's part of their humanitarian commitment medical humanitarian commitment um but they explicitly stated on their website when I want to confirm this that they will not export any of their beauty products to russia so unless uh, Putin engages in some deeper smuggling. Uh, we may see some uh, some frown lines uh, reappear on his forehead in the uh, the coming weeks and months.
0: Yeah, I guess we'll find out how good his, his uh photochoppers are at uh, compensating for that. Um, and actually, speaking of, speaking of things that have sort of resurfaced, I'll um, note this because this I just came across this, uh, but really about five minutes before we started. But um, someone who we uh, we we saw several months ago, and I, I personally haven't seen much of, but she's resurfaced. Our old friend, Maria Butina, who uh, if anybody remembers is the, oh, what did she do? She she was the downfall of some American politicians.
1: Um, yeah, she was the, so she was a person, uh, Russian spy who studied at American university in their master's degree program, but her real thing was um, connecting to the NRA and so all the money that went from like the like Russian sources to the NRA, so the NRA could engage in its political activities. She was the, uh, the honeypot that connected from Russia to whatever political operative to, uh, the NRA.
0: Yeah. So I, I, you know, and there's lots of pictures of her out there toting her, uh, her rifle with her friends over here and she got shit back. And, and in one of the brewcasts right before the war started, um, I, we talked to the guest about some because she's a member of parliament now, correct? She's a politician, I believe.
1: Yeah, she she got some sort of official position. I don't recall exactly. I'll try to look it up real quick. Yeah,
0: well, so anyways, from that position, she was, you know, saying some some aggressive things uh, in the run up to the war. But she just came up again today on one of those those really fun Russian news shows that you've pointed me towards, and now I I watch these like I watch a car wreck because they're just they're so bonkers. Um, but she was talking about how. If uh, if Russian children are caught using a VPN to access Western social networks, their parents to go to jail. So um, I, I guess I, I'm not trying to draw any deeper conclusions because uh, I just came across this, but um, I, just interesting what that what, what that might indicate about the headspace of some uh, some Russian leaders and commentators these days.
1: So yeah, so Dzhekh she is a member of Parliament, and you know the thing that you just mentioned. It's just a modern version of the nineteen thirties of Stalin's time and the Great Terror, because if you can tear at the bonds between parents and children, or between husband and wife, or between siblings, if you get people to inform on those closest to them as a way to save themselves, then essentially you break the family as like the the atomic unit within within society and thus make it easier for the government to control people by making them basically their own personal policemen their own personal secret agents
0: yeah which i guess if russia is having a manpower shortage of people of you know people that need to send to the front lines to include law enforcement maybe you know maybe this is how you fill the gap you get you get your friends and neighbors to be law enforcement on each other um which again you know greatest hits of all the worst parts of the
1: 20th century starting to see again everyone loves a good denunciation
0: yeah, let's see. Uh, I can't wait for the show trials to begin.
1: <laughs> not, even in a certain sense. not even begin. Yeah, yeah. Not that they're... they haven't
0: been going already, you know. But we'll yeah. maybe we'll uh, um, we'll get them with more frequency. All right. Well, you've all we've been going here for a while now, um, as as we sort of seem to do. But I, I think it's good, great that we've uh, we we're sort of caught up through how things are. And as we mentioned, we'll try to knock these out with more frequencies so that we're not on here for you know close to an hour every single time, and we can kind of get more back to the quick hits um, aspiration that we were trying to do with this special series. But um, thank you for your time as well. Great to see you again after a uh, long, long breaks for both of us to kind of recharge. And um, I'm gonna try and get this out today into to those who were able to listen to it today before we get to tomorrow, our Brewcast series is coming back here for season five uh, as we get back into uh, new academic year and we're kicking it off looking at uh, the Marine Corps Tactics and Operations Group, their commanding officer, Colonel Brian Green, kindly reached out to us to talk about what they've been doing to support another topic of conversation of late, which is Force Design 2030. How MCTAG as an instructional and experimental organization has been doing that, as well as what they've been doing to, 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 uh, to use modern instructional techniques uh, in one of their courses to, to build good instructors and facilitators for the fleet in the uh, in 21st century operating environment. And uh, sorry, did you have one more thing, Yuval?
1: No, I just want to say if we are able to get this out today. Uh, happy birthday to uh, my dear wife, Laura. Um, and this is actually a great test to see if she watches these. So happy birthday! Great. Well,
0: I will. I will get that out. We'll throw that 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 lure in the water and see what comes back. Okay. Um, and I'll be watching the comment section to see if she says anything. Right on. All right. Well, great. Again, Yuval, thank you much for your time, and I look forward to getting back to to knocking these out. As long as the conflict's going on, we'll be watching it.
1: Perfect. Thanks so much. Take care. All
0: right. Thanks. You too.